So we're going to do a somewhat of a topical study today. We're going to begin, uh, not to, don't turn there, we're going to begin 1 Corinthians next week. So that's kind of where we're going to. But in the meantime, today, I'm going to address something that's, that's prevalent in Scripture, uh, Jeremiah 3 and, and several other places. Speak of someone who is backsliding. And I remember the, remember the first time I heard that term, oh, they're a backslidden Christian. I'm like, what? Because it was that kind of a, I think I call it a church term, because I didn't hear it in the truck shop at all, that type of term. So I'm thinking, well, but then, you know, over the years I've thought about different things and how to express that. And, you know, a backsliding, an example would be, it's like going up a hill today in an old Volkswagen bug. Okay? You can say you're going up the hill. You can look at the radio. You can step on the gas pedal. But when you look beyond the foggy interior, you confirm you're not going where you need to go. Why do I call it a foggy interior? Anybody who remembers the Volkswagen Bugs, heater was just something you read about. It just fogged up really easy. They didn't have that good attraction, although they had a rear engine. They weren't that great. And you'd be going up the hill and it was just spinning. And that, you know what happens when you get so far up the hill, you make it a little further and you're spinning, you lose traction, you're sliding backwards. And sometimes we don't want to admit those things are happening. We just, no, I'm okay. And so when you look beyond, you wipe the window and you look beyond what you think it is and you see reality like, oh. Backsliding, it, it refers to letting go of what is sure and secure. You may just loosen your grip. But if you've ever climbed and ever been in a place like my wife and I, we climbed a, I think you bailed on me, didn't you? You didn't go. Anyway, we walked most of the way up together, a place called Angel's Landing in, in uh, Utah. And it's a pretty amazing thing, place, I think, but you're literally holding onto a chain. And at some point, you're, you're using it for your forward progress. You're, you're holding onto that which is sure and secure. Let me give you another example you don't need. Um, so I... Years ago, I went hiking, well, not hiking, with fishing with the guy. And, and so we decided we're going to go into Hell's Canyon at the dam and we're going to climb down. And it wasn't a we, he decided. I'm a young guy and he's an old guy and he knows where we're supposed to go and how we're supposed to do it. So we're going to go catch some steelhead. So we get to this place at about four in the morning and I just follow him, you know, and he's just hanging on to the rope. And I mean, I know why he needs the rope, he's old. But I'm like in my 20s, you know, so I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever. He's like, no, dude, hang, hang, seriously, hang on to the rope. Okay, so I, I didn't, I, was, I wasn't really in sync why he was saying that, but, you know, it made sense. He's old. Well, anyway, we get down to the, the spot we're going to fish. Daylight comes along. I'm looking at this mountain goat straight across from me. I'm like, man, that's cool. But then I'm thinking, they're not usually out in the flatland. And we're down in this spot. So I said to Larry, he said, how did we get down here? Where did we come down at? So he points back behind me. This literally a rock face covered in ice, and it's all slick and everything. And he's like, hold on to the rope. You need that rope. And I didn't think I did. Merge these three examples together, and you see what Scripture's talking about. When we loosen our grip on what's sure and certain, and we start thinking we can do it, we put ourselves at risk, we put other people at risk, we go places we didn't plan on, and we're not as in good a shape as we say we are, which is what happens so often when we're moving through life. Consider the prodigal son. You, you may know the story. You can find it in Luke chapter 15, 11 to 32. But the prodigal son, he knew what to do. 
He just didn't want to do it. He was aware of the sure foundation. His father, he knew how to do life in the most profitable way, not financially necessarily, but just in, in value and in being, living a blessed life. He knew what to do. But he wanted to wander off into the cesspool of the world around him. It's actually a sad story, agreed? It's got a great ending, but it's a sad story because it, you know, it, it shows where we'll go if we, if we decide we can do it on our own. It's a great read for everyone because it reveals the love and forgiveness of God. You see that through the Father. You see the wisdom of the Son. Um, you see so much what enables us to experience and even express God's love. Um, you, can, you can experience God's forgiveness and yet still slide back into the gloom of this world. You can be born again and still work your way back into darkness. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, I titled for today, is this particular focus and emphasis, the joy of his forgiveness, considering God's forgiveness. It's titled, you'll see there, some um, formats for, you know, your, as they have assembled the word of God into a particular style and different references and stuff. They, they call it the joy of forgiveness. But it is actually referred to a psalm of David, a contemplation, which means it's a song of instruction, a, uh, a psalm of, of contemplation. Consider what G. Campbell Morgan had to say about this particular psalm. It's a psalm of repentance, but it's also the song, song of a ransomed soul rejoicing in the wonders of the grace of God. Sin is dealt with. Sorrow is comforted, ignorance is instructed. There's so much in this one that we can put into practice in an application if we're willing to receive it. So with that, let's do it. Let me read verses 1 through 11 of Psalm 32. We'll go through together, and then we'll come back and, and look into some details uh, from that text. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near me or near him. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Verse 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's move back up to verse 1 and 2 and take a look at that. In these first two verses, we have uh, three words that... They're somewhat interchangeable, but there's a different depth or a different emphasis concerning 
uh, man rejecting God's direction for their life, rebelling against God. You know, the first one we're familiar with, it's used more frequently in the Bible as speaking of sin. The idea behind sin is, is falling short or missing a mark, coming up short. So the next one, the idea behind iniquity is of crookedness and distortion. So sin is just missing the mark and not arriving. And iniquity involves a little bit of crookedness, maybe a little deviousness, if you would. The third word used, transgression, the idea behind transgression is crossing a line, defying authority. So you see how they're, they are sim- similar. They're rebellion, rejecting God's direction. But you see the depth in each one. Let me give you a shorter version of it. Sin speaks of shortcoming. Iniquity invites deception. And transgression involves defiance. So when you transgress something, it's like, I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Iniquity. I'm not really doing it. It just looks like I am. <laughs> Sin, I did it. Yeah, it's, I was mine. So, look what it says here. Blessed is he, or ho- oh how happy, relieved, refreshed, is the one who is forgiven. Blessed is he. See, you as a Christian, this sadly can be forgotten in a practical sense. We, we can actually lose this really essential um, uh, description of, of who we are before our creator. We're forgiven. We're forgiven not because we've made it to church and we do certain things through the week and we tithe or we give or we serve or whatever. We're, we're, we're forgiven because he was forsaken. Because he died for our sins. Because his promises were fulfilled through the person, Jesus Christ, who is God. Because of that, he can forgive us. So our forgiveness is entirely based upon what he has done. It is is complete. It is finished, even as he said. So when we can keep that in our minds and we understand that sense of not just identity, but, but it's who we are when we're born again, then it changes how we deal with things. If we can remember that we are born again, that we're right in God's sight because of what God has done, then yes, you will find yourself happy, relieved, even refreshed. Blessed is the one who is forgiven. Notice it goes on to say in this text, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. So the element of refreshing and the sense of... I'm reluctant to say happiness but because it's related to circumstance. But it's true, the blessing realized is, is there's an element of, of being truthful and honest, that there's no deceit. It, it doesn't mean that if you're dishonest, you lose the relationship. It's just that if you're dishonest, it affects the relationship. Is that not true? If we're not honest, then it's going to, it's, no matter who it is, boss, neighbor, Children, you get it. So, it says that there's no deceit. And that means falseness. And it even carries the element of slothful or slackness. That's not there. So what we have here, and I encourage you, is is to realize, forgiven one, if you've received the the gift of life through Jesus Christ, at some point in your life, you have uh, literally said, God, I need 
you to forgive me of my sins. You didn't come to that point because you're smart. It's the grace of God that showed you, showed me individually and privately, maybe in a public setting, but very deep in our hearts, showed us that we have sinned against God. We've went against God. And when that was brought to our realization, God even brings in this, this truth that we, we receive as, okay, God, I, I, I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I don't even know if you are God or I don't know all this stuff, but I put my faith in you. I don't even know what to do. Oh, God, help. That was your prayer. You might have polished it because someone led you in prayer. But the cry of the heart was, I don't know what this means. I don't know how this is, but by faith, I believe this to be true. I'm going to put my trust in you because there's enough evidence and proof that it is true. So now you're born again, born of the Spirit. And now we're being taught, forgiven one, be honest. Consider what uh, Charles Spurgeon had to say. Now, this guy, he wrote this you know, quite a few years ago, so you get at the wording a little bit. Sinner, may God make you honest. Do not deceive yourself. Make a clean breast of it before God. Put aside the mere vestment and garment of piety and let your soul be right within. Be honest. What a powerful statement. What an amazing thing. Because right now, listening to this message in this room, there's not one person who's completely honest. Not one person. And, and it's sobering when you start thinking about that, that there's actually elements of our lives where we have been sneaky, crafty, even a little deceitful. Not to those around us as much as to ourselves. The biggest lie you face comes from within, not from without. See, what the biggest hindrance to spiritual maturity is that personal dishonesty. And, and why do we do that? Why, why does that exist? Because it's painful. It's hard. It's shameful to even agree with it. Our natural disposition is, like, is not to go, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I just been telling myself it's okay. And I know it's not, but I keep saying it. So it's okay. We, we, we may say that, but guess what? When there's this conviction and this realization, it's like, man, this is not right. This is not what I should do. This is not how I should manage my money. This is not how I should be in this relationship. This is not how it should be. And you know, we, our, our old nature is very crafty. And our old nature is influenced by an entity, a being, the enemy of your soul, who desires to steal, kill, and destroy the devil himself. And he, he wants to see you fail. He can influence you in this world. He doesn't, can't possess you as a Christian, but he can influence you. And there's this reality that we tend to be, we just don't want to see how it is. So consider that because we see in verse 3 and 4 kind of what happens. So we're, we, we, he talks about this blessing and this happiness and this, this joy of being forgiven. But David is sharing in verse 3 kind of what was going on in his life. See, you may have enough knowledge of the Bible, and you may be familiar enough to realize David was an instrument the Word of God was poured into. And it was personalized, if you would, and it came forth in the writings of Scripture, the Psalms. And you may know that um, David's life, he was an amazing man. He was a shepherd. He was the youngest, one of the, young, the youngest. He, he, uh, he was mistreated by his brothers. He was kind of set outside. He, had to, he was a shepherd, so he took care of sheep. He was used mightily by God to take down a, 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 a behemoth, a brute of an enemy, Goliath. 
just as a young teenager. He, he, he's, he's seen God's hand amazingly. He was a, was a phenomenal warrior, king and leader. He was a, not only a warrior who could yield his sword accurately for God's purposes, but he could also sit and write a poem and play instruments. It was really a fascinating personality and human. But he also had this reality. He was dishonest with himself. And when it was the time for the kings to go out to battle, David stayed back. And he put himself in a place where he could compromise. And he gazed upon another's woman by the name of Bathsheba. And as he gazed upon her, he was beholding her, the Bible says. He then started lying to himself. It's okay, I just want to talk to her. It's okay. And one lie led to another, which led to a cover-up, which led to murder and people dying in an attempt to cover up because David was dishonest with himself. And so this psalm we're reading, many believe this was written after David got busted because God said, God prompted him, and I know God spoke to him. He wouldn't listen privately and publicly. Nathan the prophet was sent to David. And David had to deal with his sin when Nathan the prophet says, you're the man, you're the one. You've been lying to yourself. And now God's going to call you out on it. Verses 3 and 4 are what happens when we're dishonest with ourselves, when we're deceitful within. And I wish I could give some analogy or bring some, you know, ease to this because it's not a difficult, it's not an easy thing. Nobody come in to church like, hey, I want to go. Hey, you guys catch first service? I'm going to go back for a second because he calls us a bunch of liars. He just gets in our face and says we're this way. Man, I could wish I'd like to have that every week. Nobody, if their brain's functioning, is going to sign up for that. But if you're a truth seeker, if you want to grow, you're also going to find yourself, oh, I need to hear that. I need to hear that. Because here's what happens if we don't. It says, I, we keep saying that my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. He, was, he, he literally held it within. When he says my bones grew old, some of you could share with some others what that means. Because you're older and your bones groan. We have prayer on Fridays from 8 to 9 o'clock in the morning. And at the end of that prayer time, some of those other people that are old, I'm not. But those others... We, we, we call it the Rice Krispie stretch because everything just snaps, crackles, and pops. It's just, it's just you get it. That's what he's talking about. It's like, man, I, I, this, it's, it's, it was hard. I, groaning all day long. It's like when you're trying to ignore something, it doesn't go away. Agreed? It can be down in there, and it can be somewhat dormant, but in reality, it's just, it's, it interferes. It, it, it affects your engagement with God in this context. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. His hand was heavy. Why? It was a hand of love, not a hand of judgment. A hand of love that says, Danny, he can call me that, and my mom, no one else. Danny. This is going to hurt you. I'm not going to just say, go do whatever. I love you. I love you. And I'm going to, I'm going to let you see the road you're on. I'm going to help you see where you're going. It was heavy upon him. Do you see what it says there? That it was like, like the drought of summer. Hard to imagine because of the snow. But midsummer with no moisture, it, you know that day, right? When you're maybe doing something and you're just, you're zapped. You got no strength. You're just drained because of the heat and the, all the stuff. That's what he's speaking of. 
It's just, what is it that does this? It's actually when we allow deceit to come into our mind and, and interfere with the intimacy we have with God. When we're, we're saying it's okay to do this, it's okay to do that, and we come up with ways to do certain things, and it just, it just, it just drains us. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. All three of them present there when he says, before you and you only I stand. What you call dishonesty, I'm going to agree with you. I'm not going to try to sell you. I'm not going to try to promote my own opinion. I'm not going to try to find some angle to be, you know, carnal. I just got to agree with you, God, and help me. Because he says, I will confess it. Confessing is basically agreeing that God is right. I agree with you. You're right, God. It's not saying, oh, I know how to do it. Because you still don't have a clue on what to do, how, how to live it out. But it's got to begin where we say, okay, Lord, I get it. I'm, I'm really just I'm not being on. I'm just, this, is, this is where I'm at. Thank you for showing it to me. We had a, a, a Saturday night service years ago. And uh, it, was a, just a, it was an exciting time. A lot of people that served on Sunday went to the Saturday night. It was mostly younger, uh, the younger crowd. And, and, of course, that created more of the younger crowd. And it, was just, it was a fun time. But it was also a time when... Uh, well, let me just put it this way. The jokes from work started showing up at church, and they didn't really fit. You know what I'm saying? And so, because you're laughing, getting to know each other, having fun, and then, they, you know, so I'm like, man, this is, so I'm praying how to deal with it. Like, okay. So I said to a couple of them, I said, here's the deal, because they were more the leaders. Next time you have one of them jokes, run it by the Holy Spirit first. It'll sound something like this. Hey, Holy Spirit, did you hear the one about when the guy walked into the bar? You know, and you'll find you can't continue with it. You'll find you're going, oh, because now you're checking. Like, oh, that's, that shouldn't be said. It shouldn't be done. And then you find yourself, man, God, I, don't, I just I don't want to be saying that. I don't want to be doing things that way. You're, 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 you're owning it. And if we're willing to do that, say, Lord, you, you just, could you just direct my thoughts, my heart, in a very personal way? It affects how we engage and interact with other people. The best scenario here is what we see in verses 3 and 4 when you feel this way and you realize it. When you feel that sense of God saying, don't go there, don't, don't do that, you know better. Between you and me, just don't do that. When you develop that sensitivity, that's the best scenario. What's the worst case scenario? Well, the worst case scenario is when we're okay with our own dishonesty. When we're okay with saying it's okay, it's different for me. That's why I do these things financially. It's different for me because, you know, we'll get married eventually. It's different for all these things that we come up with. Is, it's okay. It's not. And when we're okay with our dishonesty, it's what the Bible refers to as being self-deceived. We actually take a text and talk ourselves into doing it different. And it's very, very dangerous, quite honestly. It shows itself in this way, because when we get to that point, a common expression is that, that you're quick to blame others. We find fault with friends. We criticize those we once trusted. that, after all, can't be me. It must be those around me. It must be this is causing this. And it's really bizarre what we can talk ourselves into. Can we agree? Do you know people pick up this Bible historically? They've read certain passages, they've joined prayer groups, they've got together, and they've killed other people because of what they say they got right here. 
I'm going to suggest to you, I'm going to say strongly to you, they were deceiving themselves. They used this to do what they wanted to do, and it's a blight on human history because they were not honest. And I'm saying this because, man, if we can just kind of get a feel for this, not in a feeling sense, but the, the reality of this text. And, and then as we you know, consider, as you move on to verse 5, when you acknowledge your sin, we already talked about it. This is the garden that joy grows in. You think about it. Some things just don't grow in certain soil. But this is the garden, the garden of humility, of personal honesty, of a willing repentance. Repentance is not what happened at conversion exclusively. Turning to God, turning from where I was, I regret being there, I turn to God. That's the, big, that's the term repentance. But that's an action, and the attitude of repentance must be present throughout your Christian experience. It didn't just happen at the point of conversion. It's an element of continued spiritual growth, of repenting and saying, God, I, man, I can't believe I looked at that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe, you know, you're not, not just a self-assessment, but you realize, man, I got a lot to do. I want to grow. And this is the area, this is the soil that, that, that joy grows in, in the soil of humility. Let's look at verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly, shall pray to you in a time where you may be found. What cause? What, what could he be referring to? Well, I want to present to you that it's the cause is this gift of forgiveness that we've received. Blessed is the one who's been forgiven. And with that, you know, this, this gift of forgiveness, it should, be, it should be opened and consciously expressed, realized, and we even reminding ourselves, man, thank you, this cause, and we've received it. So suppose we are stuck in this area of elementary dishonesty, a type of um, deceit, so to speak. And you're there and you're realizing it. Would it be better to make a change now or to actually wait four years? See, habitually, you know, maybe you know the behavioral patterns. Maybe you know the reality of human experience. It's better to make the change now than say, you know, I just, it's going to be too hard, it's going to be too tough, and get familiar and get comfortable with disobedience or, or deception and, and find yourself at a point where it just gets worse and worse because it doesn't get better and better. He says, just now, the time is do it. You know, and it goes on to say, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. This speaks of times of, of turmoil and tough times. We handle tough times differently, but we definitely handle it differently when we know that he is not against us, correct? If you have a stance like, oh, you're not really like truthful to the Lord, or you have this one area like, oh, and then a tough time comes, what do you often think? Oh, God's punishing me for what I did. Oh, it's because I was doing that. It's because of that. It may not be. Understand this. Tough times are a part of this life. Jesus said this very clearly to you and me. In this world, before you enter into what we think of as heaven and this, this time and pleasant place with, be with him, in this world you will have trials, hard times, trouble, tribulation. You will have it. But, he said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome this world. So you will face tough times. The question is, how tough will you make it? I'm going to face certain things. Certain things will happen to you through no action of your own. 
Some things are going to take place, and there's really, quite honestly, nothing you can do about it to prevent it. But how you go through it can be affected. You can, I can, we can influence this. So when we go through these tough times and difficult days, I know it's better. I can speak from experience. I'm just supporting and, and confirming the word. It's better to go through it when you're close with him than to find yourself removing, moving away from him. Moving along, we're going to pick up the pace here. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. So now we see this kind of a transitional element of this, this poem, this psalm, this song. So he went from declaring this blessing when we have this experience. He even conveys or con, you know, presents what it was like before he had it. And now it comes back around, you know, saying this is something that he realized. Realization and then declaration. You are my hiding place. See, he's going, and that's not secretive, so to speak. It's protective. It's like, you know, when you get out of a storm, you're, you're not pretending like the storm can't find you. You're just getting in a protected place. So it's this realization, and he's declaring. So it's one thing to realize it, but it's also important to own it. And that's the element of declaring. This is what I know to be true. He is my hiding place. He is the, the, very, the one who will surround me with songs of deliverance, reminding us that he will be faithful. Carrying us into verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. So we have this realization of how he is. We declare it. We kind of own it personally. But then there's this recognition which follows realization. He's recognizing that God will instruct and teach and lead in the way we go. I will guide you with my eye, the word says. God instructs us and teaches us and shows us what to do. In verse 9, it reminds us what not to do. In verse 9, notice what it says. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, you know, which have no understanding. And it, it's probably a more literal translation, which they're stubborn. They will not do what you're asking them to do or that what they could functionally say no to do, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle or they will not come near you. So, verse 9. Don't be a jackass. It's biblical, you know, honestly. But seriously, think about it. The stubbornness and all this stuff. He's like, don't be like that because, you know, it... it why would he take and mirror humans and people and you and I with these beasts of burden? Is it possible that it's a good picture, a reasonable analogy? I think it is. I think there's times when we won't. We just stiffen our neck and oh, I'm not going to do it. And he's saying, don't be like this beast of burden that has to have a hunk of metal stuck in the back of their mouth so their teeth are irritated and they're sometimes poked to get them to turn their head to where they should go. Now, understand this. God's not saying, if you don't listen, I'm going to do this. He will never, he will never force his love upon you. He will never force you to do what's best for you. He invites you to react, to recognize, to realize his love. And in that love, you, he's inviting you to, listen, let's go this way. We've inaccurately said sayings, statements sometimes. We're like, you know, I was just 
man, I just wasn't listening to the Lord. And finally, he just hit me up alongside the head with a two before. I've heard that said. I think I said it as a young Christian. It's catchy, but it's inaccurate. He will never hit you alongside the head of the two before. He will invite you. He will call you. He will get your attention for sure. But he's not going to force you to love him because if he forces, forced you to love him, it wouldn't be love. Love involves will. Love involves choice. Love involves response. So let's not be like the mule or the donkey, uh, stiff-necked, stubborn, determined, not going to listen and not going to come close. Verse 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. I'll just say briefly for verse 10, life is hard. Don't make it harder. Don't make it harder. There's things we can do to make our lives harder. And the encouragement is like, okay, I, I just, it, they're going to go through sorrows, but I want to trust the Lord. I want to know this mercy. Wrapping it up with verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why are we glad in the Lord? Why would we rejoice? Why would we shout for joy? Uh, there's a really good explanation and a good insight uh, in Psalm 32, verse 1 and verse 2. That's the one we started with. That's where we're at. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the one who God does not count iniquity, count his sins against them. One who is honest before the Lord will, will experience this joy and know these truths. 